the only way that I can see is actually to solve this problem, to end the occupation, and to give the Palestinian people the same rights, the same individual and collective rights, likewise the Israeli Jewish people. Welcome to Babel, Translating the Middle East, a podcast from the Middle East program at CSIS. Here on Babel, we take you beyond the headlines to take a closer look at what's happening in the Middle East and why it matters. In recent weeks on Babel, we've heard from voices in the region about the events of October 7th and the resultant Israel-Hamas war, and we've talked about the current moment as a potential inflection point. Will this moment help drive us toward a solution, or does it only make a solution harder to reach? This week on Babel, we continue to explore these questions, this time with a Palestinian-Israeli scholar and activist, Rula Hardal. We talk about her life as a Palestinian-Israeli living in both Israel and the West Bank, what a reconciliation between Israelis and Palestinians would look like, and the concessions that each side needs to make for a sustainable path forward. Then I continue the conversation with Will Todman and Leah Hickert, discussing past moments of crisis in the Middle East and why some become inflection points while others don't. To translate some of what's happening in the Middle East, this is Babel. Rula Hardal is a research fellow at the Shalom Hartman Institute in Israel, a former lecturer at the Arab American University, and a former professor at Al-Quds University. She completed her doctorate in political science at the University of Hanover in Germany, and she's about to become the Palestinian co-director of A Land for All, an Israeli-Palestinian political organization. Rula, welcome to Babel. Thank you. You've written a lot about identity. How do you think about your own identity? It's complicated. Yeah, it's quite complicated because I deal with that not only in my daily life, but also in my academic life. To be a Palestinian born, raised in Israel, part of the Palestinian people, but also being a minority inside Israel and being also an Israeli citizen, living for 10 years abroad, especially in Germany and coming back and deciding to live in the West Bank and to work in the West Bank. Later on, to move back to Israel. Yeah, it's quite complicated. Can you talk about your decision to move to the West Bank and what you found there? Well, when I decided to come back from Germany after 10 years there, I decided to be in a Palestinian context in society, life, and academic engagement. And I get an offer from Al-Quds University, and I worked there for six years. And I discovered that even though I feel very connected to the Palestinian people, and I searched also the Palestinian society in terms of politics, national movement, I had the feeling that I'm still on the edge of Palestinian society, the Palestinian narrative. I didn't feel very connected. And I felt also that the other side don't look at me as being pure Palestinian. And was that mostly intellectual, cultural, social? I mean, how did you feel most connected? Obviously, linguistically, you're very connected. But how did you feel connected and how did you feel disconnected? 
I think it's in general the problem of a lot of intellectuals feeling disconnected to their society, to the values. But in this case, there is another level of being or feeling disconnected. And I'm all the time living between the two ends of the spectrum of being very connected and even, I would say, very rooted to both Palestinian and Israeli society and between the other side of the spectrum. I have another values. I don't feel that I'm part of this collective identity, collective narrative. And in this way, sometimes I feel I watch all what's happening on both societies in anthropological way. I cannot ignore that the way I think and the way I act and maybe the way I write and analyze everything, it comes very deeply also from being a Palestinian and a Palestinian in the state of Israel and a Palestinian who lives and works in the West Bank in a very specific reality of the Palestinian people. In a way, I live under occupation in my daily life when I leave my apartment and go to Jerusalem or to Tel Aviv or Haifa. I'm a kind of privileged Palestinian because I have the Israeli citizenship, but still I live under occupation. If the army decides one day to close the checkpoints for one hour or two hours or one day, I'm actually stuck like any other Palestinian here in the West Bank. So it's a complicated reality, which I choose to live in in a way. And on the other way, I didn't choose it because I was born as Palestinian and born having the Israeli citizenship. Did you find a difference in the way your fellow faculty engaged with you when you were teaching in the West Bank and in Jerusalem versus the way students engaged with you? No, no. Actually, the differences are between people who could handle with all of these complexities and with people who say all the Palestinian people are Palestinians, regardless of their citizenship or geographic place of birth or maybe place of living. And other people who had a kind of suspicious point of view about looking in a different way to the Palestinian people who live in Israel and have the Israeli citizenship, or maybe Palestinians who were born abroad or came back to Palestine. This is something that you don't feel actually all the time, or you don't feel it in your daily life or daily interaction with them. But it comes in different occasions and special complexities but not something that you will feel it or you suffer from all the time. Do you sense a jealousy, a distrust? I mean, what are the sorts of emotions that you feel are going on the other side? Maybe jealousy. Jealousy because having Israeli citizenship in this situation, in this reality, is a kind of privilege in the eyes of the Palestinian people who live under the occupation and they don't have Israeli citizenship, because the Israeli citizenship gives you the opportunity to move freely, for example, between the borders or between the two sides through the checkpoints. It gives you the opportunity to drive your car and to go wherever you want, for example, to the beach, without special permission from the IDF, the Israeli Defense Forces, or any other authority. It gives you the opportunity to use the Israeli airport to go abroad. You've thought a lot about the issue of peace, and I'm wondering what your experience teaching 
the West Bank and Jerusalem has done to shape what you think a peace might look like, the possibility of peace, especially with such differences that you've described between Palestinian citizens of Israel and Palestinians living in, in the West Bank? First of all, I don't really like the word peace, because when we speak about peace, we speak about certain kind of conflict between two sides, two parties. And what we have here in Israel-Palestine, it's not only conflict. It became, with the time, a conflict. And it's easy to use the word conflict. But I think we need to be more accurate and to name things as they are. We are speaking about having a complex of policies of the Israeli authorities against the Palestinian people. And not only the Israeli authorities or government, but also we should refer more to the Zionist ideology and the Zionist movement in order to start framing the reality in Israel-Palestine. It's not only settler colonialism, it's also having two national groups and two national movements, considering Zionism not only as a colonial force, but also a national movement. So we have a conflict between these two national movements, the Palestinian one and Zionism. We have the reality also of military occupation, a kind of special apartheid in part of the land. And we have a systematic state discrimination against the Palestinian people. So analyzing or understanding the reality on the ground under this complicated paradigm helps us to, when we speak about any solution, not only to speak about peace, we need more than peace in order to change the reality to be more equal or to bring more justice for the Palestinians and the Israeli people. That's why I don't like the word peace. Peace is okay, is nice, but it's not enough in this case. We need to speak about recognition, reconciliation, and about the reality that has been established between the Israelis and the Palestinians during the last 100 years. What do you make of the Israeli assertion that this is really all about security and the reason there can't be the sort of complete equality and the withdrawal of military presence in the West Bank and around Gaza is it's necessary by security. And the argument is, look at just what Hamas did on October 7th. I do understand the need for Israel as a state and as people for security and for the feeling to be secure, taking into consideration all what happened between the Palestinians and the Israelis during the last seven decades. But much more important, taking into consideration the collective memory of the Jewish people following the Holocaust, working very closely academically with Palestinians and in Palestinian universities, with students, with colleagues, and also being much involved politically and also scholarly in Jewish institutions and with Jewish Israeli colleagues, I think it gave me the opportunity to understand more deeply the very individual and collective deep psychological aspects of the Palestinian and the Zionist Israeli narrative. 
But again, to the issue of security, no, it's not about security in the way you put it and not in the way that we are witnessing since October 7th. I think, yeah, every state has the right to protect its national security and the security of the people. But in this case, we cannot only stick to the security considerations that the Israelis speak about all the time. When Israel is using very humiliating instruments and policies, controlling every aspect of the Palestinian life, they cannot have security because even though we had periods where the Palestinian people didn't resist the occupation in violent ways, people who were never here in Israel, Palestine, maybe cannot imagine how is it to live under military occupation or to live in Gaza Strip, for example, when you live in the biggest prison on earth, you are not allowed to move. And we are speaking about the most basic human rights, the right of movement, the right for dignity and for respectful life. So I cannot accept the security argument claimed by the Israelis to justify controlling the Palestinian people. The only way that I can see is actually to solve this problem, to end the occupation, and to give the Palestinian people the same rights, the same individual and collective rights, likewise the Israeli Jewish people. As you think about the work you're doing, what do you think the future of both Israelis and Palestinians is likely to look like? I do believe that both people are going to stay here in this place between the Jordan and the sea. As you know, John, I'm involved in a political organization, and our political organization is a land for all two states, one homeland. And we are speaking about an advanced form of the classic two-state solution. And we believe that we are different from the classic two-state solution. When the Oslo Agreement was signed between the PLO and the Israeli government and attempted actually to establish a Palestinian state alongside Israel. We believe that both people have the right for self-determination in the form of the modern nation state. And in this sense, I would like to live in one democratic country for both Palestinians and Israelis, but taking into consideration the interests and the mindset and the reality actually on the ground today, both Palestinians and Israelis are not there to give up their desire for self-determination. That's why I still speak about the importance of having two sovereign states for the Palestinians and the Israelis. But we speak also about sharing the land and not separating or dividing the people and the land, based on the right of belonging of the Palestinians and the Israelis to this land as a homeland. And Palestinians and Israelis consider this place historically and even theologically kind of homeland. We speak about two states with open borders and with a kind of upper political economic unit that can operate for the two states and not having a complete separate independent states. And the last point that we speak about is recognition and reconciliation as also 
very important principles when we speak about solving the conflict between the Palestinians and the Israelis. It's not only about signing a peace agreement, but it's a process of reconciliation and recognition the collective rights and individual rights of the two people for equality and dignity and justice, but also reconciliation and recognition of the suffering of the two people in their own history, be it the Jewish people and the Palestinian people through the Nakba and the seven decades after the Nakba. What percentage of Palestinians and Israelis do you think would start off opposed to that kind of idea? And what's the process by which you think you can reassure people that this is actually a pathway toward resolving the conflict? I'm going to say something that maybe will shock you. I do believe that the majority of the Palestinian people will accept such a solution or such a political vision. And unfortunately, less than that among the Israelis You know, the Israeli people live in privileged reality compared to the Palestinian people. And when we speak about such a political vision and settlement, we speak also about giving up some of these privileges. But also, if we speak more deeply about what should happen in order to reach this political vision, I think in terms of the national narratives, of the Jewish-Israeli people and the Palestinian people, we need something deeper, what I call it actually decolonizing Zionism and Zionist perception from supremacy and the feeling that the only people who have the right to belong to this place are the Jewish people. On the other side, when you speak about the Palestinian national collective narrative, also the Palestinian people need to have a kind of transformation in their mindset towards the Jewish people, and especially the Israeli people who live here, that they have also equal rights to describe themselves as a national group. The Palestinian people need also to have this transition from claiming Palestine, historic Palestine, to be for the Palestinian people, to another attitude to share the land with others. And it's your judgment and experience that the extremists in the Palestinian community will be controlled as one hopes extremists in the Jewish community will also be controlled if this were to move forward. You know, I think even if the whole issue of Palestine-Israel will be solved tomorrow, we will still have extremist groups on both sides. But I do believe that the majority of the population, the Palestinian and the Israeli, are not extremists. And I still believe that even following October the 7th. And we don't have any choice. We don't have any other choice for the both people. And we don't have also the luxury to allow these small extremist groups to win in this situation. We are the majority, the people who would like to live in a normal situation, without violence and without any kind of supremacy and control of one group over the second one. You deal with a wide range of people. You deal with Jewish Israelis, Palestinian Israelis. I assume you also deal to some degree with Palestinians in the West Bank. What are the range 
of views you hear about October 7th and the war. Is there a sort of consensus? Is there a big split? Is there a spectrum? How would you describe the attitudes of people toward the war? It's a spectrum when we speak about the Palestinian people as well as the Israeli people. It's a spectrum of opinions and feelings, but mainly, or maybe we can find some common feelings, major feelings that all the people from their individual and national position actually feel, and I mean the Israelis and the Palestinians, the feelings of fear, of a kind of of worry, deep worry about what is coming next and the future, anger, all of these feelings, I hear them and I notice them on both sides. On the other side, it's also very natural for any group or any society to go back and to position itself in the very basic national feeling to protect itself. And it brings automatically, if we like it or not, to a kind of patriotic nationalist feelings and attitudes. But what I also would like to emphasize in this case that I do believe from what I hear and discuss with people, both people are tired from the death and from this violence and from the repeated waves of escalation. The two groups are tired from suffering, and especially the Palestinian people. They are the most to suffer in this situation, and they are the most interested in any solution, more than the Israelis, unfortunately, but this is actually the reality. Do you think, as somebody involved in peace building or reconciliation or however you want to frame it, do you think that the events of October 7th have brought us closer to resolving this issue, or has it fueled the extremes, increased distrust, and pushed us further away? And if you're not sure now, when do you think we'll be able to tell? What we are witnessing now since October 7th, I feel that the gap and the trust between the Israelis and the Palestinians is much complicated and that we are in a kind of regression a lot of years back in our history and that accordingly we need to restart from a different standpoint that we've been before October 7th. And it's frustrating because what happened on October 7th is something new, something different, when we speak about the relationship between the Palestinians and the Israelis, at least during the last maybe 40 years, even the Second Intifada still have very difficult negative associations among the Israelis. I think what we are having now is another level of escalation and another level of fear and a broken situation broken feelings between the Palestinians and the Israelis. We hear more extremist and pessimistic and violent voices among the Palestinians and the Israelis following not only what happened on 7th October and the Israeli war against Gaza Strip following it, but also 
the whole media discourse and the feelings and the consequences of these events, the war on Gaza, the massive killing and destroying of Gaza Strip, the Israeli threat of Second Nakba and transfer of the Palestinian people, and also the brutal attacks of Hamas against the Israeli civilians in southern Israel, it's a very significant break between the two people. And I think we need, after the war ends, a lot of international and international work in order to recover, uh, to revision our attitudes, to revision our national narratives, and to start healing from all of these bad feelings and trauma. And yes, it will take years to be able to build real bridges in order to continue together and to start settling the conflict in a way that serves the interests of the Palestinians and the Israelis. Saying all of that, we don't have the privilege to wait years in order to keep our engagement for peace and for solving and ending the occupation. It is also now the time to keep speaking about hope and about the opportunity, the only opportunity to save the Palestinians and the Israelis is to solve this conflict and to reconcile. Rula Hardell, thank you very much for joining us on Babel. Thank you. Thank you, John. The Israel-Hamas war is an unprecedented event in the history of Israeli-Palestinian relations. Big events like this can serve as a kind of inflection point with the potential to lead to big opportunities. Where else in the region have we seen inflection points, and how sustainable are they? You know, in many ways, the largest inflection point was the 1973 Yom Kippur War, followed by Sadat's trip to Jerusalem, which changed the nature of both Israel's relations with Egypt, but more broadly, Israel's relations with many of its neighbors. There is an argument that when Sadat crossed the Suez Canal, he had in his mind that it was to sue for peace with Israel, that the deal was implicit in the initial attack, and that made it more likely that we got to a peace agreement at the end. More often, we've seen what seem to be inflection points, whether it's the Arab Spring in many countries, the fall of certain leaders, where there seems to be a certain pendulum that swings back. There seems to be a certain amount of momentum that these societies have that it's hard to totally give up. Most often what we've seen either in these Arab Spring countries or where you've had a coup overthrow supposedly a Republican president who acts like a king replaced by another Republican president who acts like a king or something else. I mean, we haven't seen a lot of cases where the society is ready for a real revolution. And in many cases, the inflection points aren't revolutions. They're punctuations, but the same conditions prevail. You don't have the sort of forces within society to change things. And after the things settle down, they return to the status quo ante. Yeah, I agree with you, John, that I think that's more common than really sharp shifts in direction. 
Going back to Syria, I think of Assad's chemical weapons attack on the Ghouta suburbs of Damascus in 2013. And I think there are a lot of people who think that really could have been an inflection point in the war. The reason being that at the time, President Obama had said that the use of chemical weapons was a red line. And if he had chosen to really enforce that and inflict a serious cost on the Assad regime, that really might have taken the course of the Syrian war in a different direction. But as it was, that didn't happen. And I think then that set in motion what we've seen of more than a decade of U.S stasis, really, in Syria. And that in itself has changed the course of the war. So in some ways, it was a kind of inflection point, but maybe not in the way that we thought at the time. And then similarly, in Saudi Arabia, I think of the drone attacks on the Saudi oil facilities at Abqaiq and Khoreis in 2019. And you know, these were really quite staggering attacks. They took a huge amount of Saudi Arabia's oil production facilities offline and inflicted major economic costs. But ultimately, there wasn't a very strong international reaction to that. And I would argue that, again, that wasn't maybe the sharp inflection point that it might have been, but it perhaps then set the region on a slightly different course, and particularly Saudi policy on a different course, which contributed to then the normalization of ties that we saw earlier this year, this feeling that continuing in the same way wasn't sustainable. So we do see probably more occasions where these, you know, big attacks have not had the immediate impact that we think, but they can set a different trajectory in the longer term. In the interview, Rula talks about her struggles with identity, not feeling part of the Israeli society or Palestinian society. In the Middle East, seemingly homogenous countries have minorities, whether they're sectarian, religious, or ethnic. How has the region's instinct to preserve these differences played out? So I think sometimes these differences are preserved in legal systems. Going back to Syria, Bashar al-Assad is, you know, he has claimed that he is a defender of minorities and has used that rhetoric to try to maintain the support of different minorities in Syria throughout the course of the war. But even the newer version of the constitution that he implemented in 2012 states that Syria is an Arab country. It states that the president must be Muslim. Syrians still have their religion listed on their ID cards. And so this is really a stark legal divide that the state chooses to maintain. There are also, I think, other cases where it might more be the application of the law rather than the law itself. You know, we talk about sometimes Jewish Israelis as if they are one block, but there's a huge amount of diversity there. And again, I think there's a diversity in terms of how law is applied. The ultra-Orthodox community has traditionally not had to serve in the Israeli Defense Forces, not had to do national service in the same way that others have. And so different customs there that treat different communities differently. Somewhere like Saudi Arabia, I think that happens as well with the Shia community in the East. My understanding is that Shia communities have to apply for permits to build mosques there. They typically aren't built outside of the eastern provinces. And again, I think it's not that there's a total denial, but there are restrictions. So I think sometimes these are really stark legal things, and sometimes it's more about different application of law and different processes that certain minorities have to go through. But frankly, however homogenous a place seems, it's almost like a fractal. You can always go down and down and down. So even within sectarian groups, 
Then there are tribes. And of course, there are tribes that, that cross sectarian groups. And then tribes, you have extended families. It goes on and on. It seems to me that a lot of rulers have felt it's beneficial to have some of these divisions and have tried to preserve them. A lot of leaders of different sectarian groups have found it useful to have these divisions. People find it useful to have somebody they can actually go to when they need something. So there's in many ways a, a popular reason to have an intermediary against the big bad government. And we are very used to a society where it's illegal to make these kinds of distinctions, even though people informally often do. I think that these societies are just starting from a different point. They, in many cases, think they're going to a different point and denying these kinds of differences seems to them to lead not toward better governance, but toward governments that are less responsive to the citizenry, less protective of citizens' interests, and ultimately not in the citizens' interests rather than serving them. Another type of difference that I think is really relevant to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is the difference of opinion. In the interview, Rula explained that the conflict is really driven by minorities who have extremist ideas. And if we're looking at any future or pathway towards peace, what can be done to quiet the more extremist voices on either side of this conflict? To me, one of the important things is extremists tend to focus on the messages of other extremists because the other extremists justify extreme views. And so it's important partly to amplify the views of people in the center, but also to contextualize the views of people on the extremes. We have fallen into a pattern in the world where loud and unusual voices get disproportionate attention. And that has an effect of polarizing societies. We see it partly in the United States. We see it in Eastern Europe. We see it all over. Everybody's always going to be able to find a quote of somebody that's going to exactly fill their image of just how impossible the other side is. But I think all of us have to adjust to a world where extreme voices get a lot of attention, emotionally charged messages tend to hijack conversations. And there's a universal piece to our need to recover some sense of community, mutual responsibility, and shared interests, which certainly applies in the Israeli-Palestinian case, but isn't limited to the Palestinian-Israeli case. There are, I think, some tools that the U.S. government and others have to try to deter some of those more extreme voices on either side. I saw some talk about the U.S. government even considering travel bans on extremists, both including, you know, of course, those are already on Hamas and on extremists on the Palestinian side, but talking about doing it for extremist settlers as well in the West Bank. You know, you could even say that President Biden's reluctance to invite Prime Minister Netanyahu to the White House was in a way an effort not to grant legitimacy to the judicial overhaul that he was trying to undertake in Israel. But of course, you know, some of these sticks that you might have, they can backfire as well, because they can end up creating a sort of martyr syndrome or, you know, even legitimizing the struggle and the feeling of persecution that some of these extremist voices have. And 
So I think it is a very tricky balance. To be fair, you know, one of the challenges of the Arab-Israeli conflict in particular, and Palestinian-Israeli conflict more narrowly, is there is a global audience for this. There are billions of people around the world who care, and that means there are billions of people on the outside who are making extreme statements. There are billions of people on the outside who are listening for extreme statements. And it's just that there's sort of a leverage to loud voices in this particular conflict because so many people care that, and in many cases, as you know very well, some of the most radical voices are people who don't live there. They don't live with the consequences of their radicalism. It's radical Islamists living in Western Europe using the protections of Western Europe to spew hatred and yet inflaming the situation on the ground. I certainly have been in any situations on Arab television where callers in where the most extreme voices are from a place like Norway and people with the most moderate voices are living in the West Bank and trying to really do things that affect their futures. How you untangle that in this particular situation is not clear to me, but it does feel to me like this particular conflict is unusually difficult to untangle because there is such broad interest and because you do have so many people fueling the fire from the safety of being afar. We certainly had this in Northern Ireland in the 1970s and 80s, where some of the most radical voices supporting terrorists in Northern Ireland were North America. And we were able to deal with that problem in Northern Ireland largely through cooperation of governments and through progress on the ground. So it doesn't mean it's intractable, but it does mean that you have to be aware of it and you have to deal with conflicts that have a broader audience a little bit differently than conflicts that are just limited to combatants on the ground. It will definitely be interesting to see how external actors employ new tools to try and engage more moderate voices as the war goes on. Thank you for joining me, John and Will. Thank you, Leah. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Babbel. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find more analysis on this topic linked in the show notes on the CSIS website, and you can find us on Twitter at CSIS Mideast. Thank you.